Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Now, this uh, podcast is in two uh, parts, I guess, albeit it's one podcast, if that makes any sense. Later on, I'll be dealing with uh, all the uh, issues arising from the World Grand Prix and uh, all listener emails that have come in, so that'll be coming up later. But the main part uh, is, uh, well, it's not snooker player bingo, it's snooker venue bingo. So uh, on this uh, edition, we've uh, gathered Alan McManus, Phil Yates and Neil Folds together with myself, now, quite often we, we've done this before and we talk about players, but uh, and we've done one talking about non-players, but actually we thought, with so many venues around the world, so many that people have seen on TV, people have uh, gone to themselves, why not have a discussion about some of our favourite snooker venues, some of the quirkier ones, some stories uh, from you know the places we've been in the name of snooker. So that's the first part of the podcast, and then later on, as I say, uh, emails and we'll be talking about uh, the World Grand Prix. So uh, let's uh, let's get into the discussion. Okay, we're recording this on Alan's birthday, so as a special treat, Alan, you can go first. Oh right, okay, yeah. Uh, so snooker venues obscure and, and different. Well, the first one I'm going to go was back from my amateur days. Um, it was the final of the Scottish Amateur Championship. Um, I played against one of my best mates to this day, who folds he knows and texts and is in contact with. Paul McPhillips, really good guy, great guy, great player. Played Hendry, almost got to the crucible, all that stuff. So I played him. But the unusual thing about the venue was, it was in, at the time, this was, I think it was May 90. Um, it was the premium nightclub in Glasgow. It was the one, that, you know, the trendy one, where everyone... You know that was the the place to go. It was on two levels, but both levels had, t- had two rooms, if you like. So the final it was sponsored by tenants. The final was in there, and I th- and it was a Sunday evening, I believe it was either Saturday or Sunday. But the strange thing about it is, to cut a long story short, the evening session we started at some. I think I was five three in front. It was best of seventeen, first of nine. So it got to about seven five. And the and the dancing started the nightclub literally and so it was kind of weird but it was a one time gig because 
the, no snooker would have been played in it before or since. And so, we no one, you couldn't go down and tell like 600 revellers, keep the bloody noise down, you know, you, you just couldn't do that. So that was... Uh, this isn't the place where Roger de Corsi was dancing late at night, is it? No, Can that was Blackpool. Okay, no, just to was, make sure. And, and just... it was Keith Harris. Okay. Sorry about that. A lot of names were coming to it. It didn't need to be involved. A lot of big names. Premium names. So, yeah, so that was a really unusual one. Scottish Amateur Championship final. It was a big deal at the time. Why was it there? Well, they always had it in a venue as such every year as a showpiece for the, you know, the amateur, our amateur association. They had it in the place where they used to play the Lang Supreme, which at the time was the Ski and Do, which Neil probably played, played there once. Yeah. yeah, the Ski and Do. Then it was a hospitality inn. Uh, they played the Lang Supreme there. Jimmy and all that won it there. The Scottish Amateur Final was in there. It was also in the, the Ibrooks Club next to Rangers Stadium. It was called the, the Ed, Edmiston Club. So it was always in a big venue. They sold tickets, big crowd, support for both players, association guy, Blazers and punters it was actually a big big deal they held a buffet in between sessions you know for people and the tickets were I think two or three quid I mean it was brilliant and it was it it was quite a palatial uh, venue the the nightclub so in terms of the most unusual places to ever but the other other thing was it was a brand new Riley Aristocrat table but obviously a brand new cloth so conditions were like thinking back you know that it was sliding and it, it, was, it took us about five frames to get the hang of it. Both of us, and you know, there was like good-looking promotional girls, tenants' girls, big advertising boards, a proper referee. It was like you know, lighting and the hush and. But then, <laughs> did you end up in the nightclub at the end of the night? I, actually, no, no, I didn't. No, I, I went for some food with. Uh, I can't. I think it was my mum because I, I happened to win anyway. So. Um, I, I went for some food, but it was a cool place to play, and I went there many times uh, in, in the proper form. So, so, you, so hang on a minute, you, there was all this noise going on, and you still won because I know that you don't like pubs with any noise, in, do you? You like it to be absolutely funereal. Now I'm an old man; I've got an excuse. You know, I like to just sit there and read the paper and complain like everyone else. Was this Glasgow? Did you say? This was sorry in Glasgow, right yeah, in the yeah. centre of Glasgow, literally in Sucky Hall Street, the most famous one, you know. Yeah, I mean, I didn't play in any of those places, but I didn't, I'll just stay on the subject of Glasgow, I did play in the Masters Club, I think it was, and there was a room in there, and I think I'd won the Scottish uh, Masters, and the next year, you beat me first round, I didn't want to play you, you beat me, and the next year, Ian Doyle and my dad were still friends at that point, it didn't last much longer, that friendship, but um, I was invited as a possible, there was four of us playing, to try and get down to one place, and you know, everyone wanted to be there, but it wasn't very glamorous, because we played in a room, Stalin. Might not have been. I sorry. thought it was in the Masters Club. Could there been. was a room. Anyway, it was it was Alan Burnett, myself, Andy Hicks, somebody else. Alan Burnett beat me. She's, I'm still living off winning the <laughs> Scottish Masters right. two years later, but it was not. And the winner of all that got into it. Alan Burnett made it, but you know that's my only experience I think, of playing playing in Glasgow. Yeah, to be yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember that the, the thing you're talking about. But yeah, yeah. well, Alan's story talking about amateur snooker, and I must put a disclaimer in: my amateur snooker is for more humble than Allen's. Um, league snooker around the West Midlands 
you know, you go to these extraordinary venues, the Liberal Club where you play and the tables are balling. And upstairs you've got the, the judo club, so boom, 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 and you're playing into little tiny pockets. Oh, oh nightmare. Please don't, uh, <laughs> make me think about that again. But I think the most bizarre place I played at was, um, Hale Zone Athletic. Now, it was completely anathema to me because the majority of the people who went there were athletic, as the name suggests. There was a, a cycling track and a, 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 a running track inside. Clearly, snooker was an afterthought. And I walked in with a couple of my teammates to play this match. And uh, we said to the guy, where's the table? Oh, he said, we'll wheel it in. <laughs> and they wheeled this full-size table in, <laughs> bolted it to the floor in <coughs> these little clips. And we played on it. Now, the two things about that was, it was just ridiculous. One, it was so low, you can't believe this table was ridiculous. The other was, we were all wearing normal sort of formal shoes and it was on a on a on a ballroom floor we were slipping everywhere did it roll off nightmare absolute nightmare mm. so that, from all that it was nice to, it was all right oh, was yeah, it? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah so i feel like so i'm on a psychiatrist couch here sort of you know unburdening myself like, <laughs> 30, 35 <laughs> years later <laughs> oh, <no>. even <laughs> yeah. one venue i wanted to ask about because it's it's always brought up and in fact ken was talking about it yesterday uh goffs with uh, the irish masters um, and it's achieved almost mythical status. People say, going back to Goths, it was brilliant. How, how good was it to play at? For the br- first br- brilliant. I, I was lucky enough, I, Neil will get to it, obviously. I was lucky. I played two finals at Goths, both to Steve Davis, mm. and both were quite close. One was actually 9-8, and I think I was 8-7, in fact, I know I was 8-7 in front. So I, I, I had a chance to win. I could have won, obviously. Um, I didn't. Um, but the atmosphere was sensational. Mm. There was a ring round the top with like almost five, eight or eight people deep, and it was like it, it, it was a bit. It was like a coliseum. I, I, I think a brilliant place to play. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone that doesn't know what golf is, it's it's like um, it's where they it's, it, the horses are sold there at auction. It's an auction ring, basically, isn't it? And it's a yeah. beautiful little. It's, it's, <coughs> it's, it's circular. And the, the the seating just looks right down on the table. It's a real uh, atmosphere. I, I lost to Steve Davis. He used to win every year. I lost yeah, in the final him as well one game, year. Yeah. Um, um, but it, it was a fantastic atmosphere. It was I don't think behind the scenes, looking back, there was much. I think the dressing room was a bit manky and mm. small because really they were bringing horses there. And I guess people might have to just get changed. They were you know walking the horses around to be silent. And, and we're talking about one of the great sales rings in the world, actually, mm. where you know, these multi-million pound horses are sold. The atmosphere in there was superb. There was a hospitality area upstairs, but I don't, I don't even think they had a practice table there, as I'm told. Uh, yeah, I don't they, remember they, that. They did in the last one or right. two years, but it was in like in an outbuilding, actually probably a horse, not a horse box, but a, a horse outbuilding, if yeah. it was separate, you know. But generally they didn't. Separate. Very, very good yeah. venue and the great atmosphere. You know, I played Higgins there and I played Ken there and they got incredible receptions. Mm. You know, it was a real... You walked into the Lions Den playing there. I think, yeah, because I think you've touched on a few things there. Like, when we talk about an ideal venue, it has to be ideal for different constituencies. The players, of course, you know, they need a proper playing area, but also the spectators, they need, you know, proper seating and comfortable seating, the demands of broadcasters, um, the backstage facilities, like you say, for guests and other people. You know, the Crucible, obviously, is quite cramped backstage because it's, it's an ordinary theatre. Uh, Goffs fill from a non-playing perspective. Okay, I didn't think it was very good to be honest. From a non-playing perspective, look, everyone who has ever played there raves about it, and you can't all be wrong, can you? So mm. clearly, that is, you know, a wonderful venue in that regard. 
But one thing that people fail to realise, you look at the old footage of Goffs, they couldn't get the cameras in the yeah, right so place. So the table looked like it was, I was 18 foot long. It was very high. Yeah, it? yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that, that's one thing. Backstage, our press officer, Shay, was the nicest guy in the world, and, and I can't speak highly enough of him. But the actual facilities weren't uh, weren't brilliant. No. From a, strictly from a players that you were looked after royally, yes. it was awesome. But yeah. sorry, I, I Kevin know. Norton used to look after us very yeah. well, the, the tournament director, Absolutely. didn't he? Well, I, I would say from a, from a press perspective, uh, look, we're only a very small cog in what's a, a you know a, a massive machine, and the most important thing is the players, and the most important thing of a lot is whether it's a, a good venue for spectators, because if it wasn't for them and wasn't for TV viewers, none of us would be here doing this job. I think it ticks the box in that regard, but I think in terms of um, facilities other than the arena and that problem with the, the aspect of the table, mm. not, not the best. Very good corporate venue, though, wasn't it? Because there used to be lots of lunches and dinners, which Kevin Norton used to employ you to go to, actually. Um, and it was you weren't just there to play, you were there to... Uh, represent the game, and because I didn't always realise that at the first part, part, but you know that was part of it. You'd sit at a lunch, and you'd speak to all these guys and go and play your match. But that was fine, you know, because everyone was doing it. And it was almost done on a kind of Folsey's right, Kevin Norton. It was almost done really quickly, I, I, and this is the way it was done. Kevin would come up to you if you'd lost, or even if you were still in, maybe on plane for a couple of days. He'd say, "Are you are you okay to mingle tonight?" And, you know, and you, you knew exactly what he meant. It means yeah. I want you to go and mix with my guests, mm-hmm. and but he looked after you royally. So yeah, it was good. Uh, you know every player. You'd, oh yeah, no problem. Hey, mad, and it was good fun. He'd feed you, you know, get a glass of wine. It was brilliant. One immense positive, I think, from that tournament when it was the invitation event, it was far superior to when it became a ranking event. Yeah, faster. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. Just finally on, on golf, I think we do miss miss the Irish Masters. Actually, a tour, a big tournament in the Republic of Ireland. We have the Northern Ireland Open, but tournament in the Republic it seems like an obvious kind of market. Anyway, Neil, do you want to throw okay. in? Yeah, I'm not going to come out with anything quite as obscure. I'm going to go with something that we. Well, I think Alan will know. How about Pebble Mill Studio as a venue? It's quite an unusual venue when you think about it because it actually was a studio in the BBC building. It was quite sterile in there. I, I mean, I played junior pop black there, and then I played in pop black there. And it was very different to being anywhere else. I mean, it, there's nothing quaint about it, like the venues that Alan, you know, and, and, and Phil are saying, but it was just a, quite daunting, a big deal. It was an audience. I don't even know how you became a, a, an audience member there. I think you, people used to apply for tickets, whatever. You couldn't just turn up. There was a, a designated crowd of, of about 100 people, and they used to clap at all the right times and do all that. And this you know, was Birmingham, Birmingham? It was Birmingham yeah. Pebble Mill, yeah. And um, and that's where <coughs> I first played Junior Pop Black, like I say. And then Pop Black was always held there. I don't remember it until it sort of changed into one or two different events. Uh, it, did you ever play the Alan? No, not at all. I, obviously, I know of it through the daytime show with Titch Marsh or whoever else. Mm. But I didn't know. I didn't play it. But I'm aware of it, obviously. Well, that was the venue, wasn't it, where they, um, they used to have Pebble Mill at one. Mm. And uh, that song, Owen Paul was singing that, You're My yeah. Favourite Waste of Time. And he's <laughs> obviously miming, and the halfway through the music cut out and left him completely yeah. with... And with he no, didn't know nothing. Or did he know well, he was left with nothing. Yeah, you, know, I you know, I don't think anyone knew his miming and it stopped. But that was the venue. And I mean, I, you know, I sort of rubbed shoulders with, you know, Ray Reardon and Eddie Chan, all these guys that have come to the end of their career. Um, but it was strange to set up there. Not only the, it, it was half an hour and you would play down to the black in the frame or whoever had won it. They were just trying to get it in. And of course, that was in the early days of, of snooker in a way, although at that point it was later on. 
it was terrific. You know, Alan Wiggs would present it and, and Sidney Lee would be the referee. It was a kind of very TV orientated thing without much else. But it was a venue I... Did you ever go there, Phil? Uh, I never went there for, for snooker, no. Um, you say about Alan Weeks, Clive Everton told me that Alan, who was a very accomplished broadcaster, quite often took a, a large number of takes uh, to do his uh, yeah, I think so. preamble and his you know, yeah, after-frame right, after uh, sort of uh, epilogue. Um, Sidney Lee, of course, was a player. He's a billiard player who actually played in some of the world championships as yeah. late as the early 70s. I actually saw Sydney Lee play, actually, in the yeah. plate in the 1973 World Championship at uh, Deansgate City Exhibition Halls. The thing about Pebble Mill, it was right in the middle of some very notable snooker venues, yeah. which now don't exist. The place where Joe Davis won the first world title in 1927. Campkins Hall. Yeah. Campkins Hall. Bright Street. Yeah, 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 not too far from there. Very close, Sully Park British Legion. Yes where Alex Higgins won the World Championship in 72, and it was also very close to the snooker scene offices on oh, Hagley Road. Well, I actually did a podcast literally about all of that that you just said. That just shows you don't listen to it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just thought <laughs> I repeated, Dave. But, but actually, it makes sense um, for that pop black because it wasn't for a live audience as such. It wasn't like selling tickets yeah. every day. It was recorded in one go. It made total sense to have it in a TV studio because a lot yeah. of the challenges we talk about at venues were solved. It was, it was in the natural habitat of television. But it was completely out of the natural habitat of a young player coming out of a, a snooker club, terrified of the cameras in the first place. But it was very sterile. But no, I, I have looked back on it fondly. I mean, it's gone now, isn't it? Well, it's yeah. The, the building is it, it's some sort of sort of I don't want to say murky, but there's some sort of chemical firm uh, is, is in there. There's a plaque outside, and that's the only sign it was ever a, a TV um, operation. The last word on Pebble Mill. You'll know this story, Phil. There was a, a very famous, uh, the, lo the man who did Midlands Today on the BBC, the local news, Alan Towers. He was a, you know, a, literally a towering figure. And he resigned live on air at Pebble Mill. Uh, he, he was doing this, you know, after Grandstand, they had that little five minute news and sport, local news and sport. And he'd had enough that he said, uh, I still remember what he said. He said, uh, he said, when I joined the BBC, it was run by giants. Now it's run by pygmies in grey suits. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, see you after the generation game, sort of thing. It was one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you and good night. But anyway, we're, we're not here to talk about Alan Towers. Uh, I think we're back to, back to Alan McManus. All oh, right, okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to go with I think my favourite professional match venue that I've ever played at. It was in Austria. You know, when you go somewhere and something. I've spoke about this, I think, before, or certainly written about it. You know, when you go somewhere and it strikes you and it gets you. You know, you go, gee, this is like Wonderland. You know, it was. It was like that. Anyway. We flew into Salzburg. It was the European Matchroom League. I think Steve Davis was... Well, I know Steve Davis was there. Jimmy White might have been there. So we flew into Salzburg. It was a place called Gemünden. And it was about 20 minutes, half hour from Salzburg. So anyway, cut along. So I think we've, we've played the matches, but the, it was a quaint little po picture postcard on the banks of the... I can't remember the river. Chessboard, old, old guys with pipes moving chess pieces around next to the hotel very quaint square and we, we, there was a billiard hall um, Karom no, no, you know three cushion billiards no pockets mm. some snooker and uh, nine ball pool so myself and Steve Davis went out on the Raz on the Randan which uh, as we say in Glasgow which uh, didn't happen very often um, so we played Karom and we had a few beers you know the in, in the UK they call them steins, you know, a two-point, two-pint jug of beer. 
They're actually not called Steins. That's something that annoys me. It's called a mass. The German. <laughs> Don't do an Alan Towers on us. The, ge- the, 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 the German <laughs> word. So for everyone calling these things Steins, they're not Steins. It's called a mass. Anyway, so uh, I, I digress. Um, so we goes into this place and we played Karom for about three hours, getting drunk. And it was. I, I was a kid. I, was, I think I was about twenty-one. So for me to be out there with Steve Day, it just, and so we're going back to the hotel after playing Karom. There's a pizza bar, but we've got no currency. I've told this story before. And we've got no money, no currency. This little dimly lit in the corner somewhere, it can't be open. Anyway, it was. We went in, couldn't speak, you know, the, lang- the lingo. Said, listen, can we have two pizzas on the house, not in the house, and we'll pay you tomorrow? Yeah, sit down, have a beer, there you go, pizza. Is that what you like it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. then I went back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I'm going, this, this wouldn't happen, it wouldn't happen in Glasgow. <laughs> so, I'm going, this is just nice, you know, this is weird. So we had pizza, beer, went to, you know, the hotel, hit the sack. I think we were leaving the next day, we said to the guy, we said to the guy, listen, we'll come back tomorrow, after, early afternoon, and we'll give you the money, you know, whatever, 40 euros, it wasn't euros then, it was... Austrian shillings I think it was anyway we goes back in there you go there's the money for the pizza and they go oh yeah no problem as if everyone would do that <laughs> you know, and they probably wouldn't mm. in this day and age anyway a, a brilliant place to play as well it was really popular the venue from what I remember I can't remember the, the name of the venue but Gemünden in Austria struck well, Mozart me Mozart played billiards in his youth a, a form of billiards Mozart yeah uh, right well Went before uh, moving into uh, other areas yeah. see I think that some of these European um, cities uh, uh, we haven't really explored them enough and this is me saying that don't, doesn't really understand how the workings of the world snooker is so I'm not going to say I can do the job better than them but thinking about it I, I, you mentioned Steve just talking my memory I played in Reykjavik with Steve in a, in a Premier League match once um we we had to fly out there. And it was the time of the year in in um, in Iceland when it was dark almost all the time. It got a little bit of twilight about eleven o'clock for an hour. I went over with Steve, flew over with him. We were, it was when he branched out on the Premier League and the odd match was played in Europe. Some were just played it maybe at Brentford or some of regulation. But um, and we flew over there. And when we I mean I wasn't beating Steve very much as nobody was at the time. And we, we got there, and Steve's on the carousel, Steve's suit, nothing arrived. Mine did. I thought, this is great. Be, you know, he's got nothing. He's got his queue, because you could take the queue on the plane, but he's got no, no, uh, dress suit, nothing, and I've got all the gear, so I think, well, I think I've got the edge over him. Anyway, when we get to the venue, he says, listen, my stuff's, it's not going to be here until tomorrow, whatever it was. Uh, we were playing that evening, and anyway, the, it turns out that the, the promoter had a boutique in Reykjavik, and he said, Steve, here's a, a boss three-piece suit for you. <laughs> and and the, it had big lapels on it, which Steve didn't like, so he sort of put um, that stuff, that sticky stuff underneath Double them. Sided, yeah, and so that they didn't come out. And he goes, I'll tell you what, Steve, you can keep that suit. It's about a £1,000 <laughs> suit. So typical Davis uh, lands on his feet. He won two consecutive frames against me, needing a snooker that night beat me so everything about that was yeah. typical of Steve you know yeah. a, you know, the, the thing that went wrong he came out smelling a rose he, someone gave him a better suit yeah. than he was going to have in the first place yeah. and he beat me so that was Reykjavik but we don't seem to play there anymore no, and, and, and the crowds were huge yeah the, the, some of the places like that and like the place I was it was like Alan in Wonderland that mm. was where it felt yeah. like I suppose yeah. it was the, a brilliant place the Icelandic guy that gave him the suit you could describe as a diamond geezer 
Well, very good. <laughs> it was also boss for the boss as well. It Listen, was the boss at the time. It was just typical of Steve, though, wasn't it? To, to come out smelling the roses. That was him. That was how he was. No, you're right. I think, like, it, we know from Eurosport, obviously, 60 countries it goes to. We have been to a few of them. I mean, Steve's probably played in more countries than anyone, actually, when you look back at all the. Yeah, the oh, for sure. And everything. Yeah. But it, it would be nice to, to go back to some of these places, for sure. But anyway, Phil, maybe you could introduce a European element, because I think you've got one up your sleeve. Very much so, yeah, absolutely. It was the first tournament. I ever covered from start to finish and I honestly thought it was the norm and looking back on it it remains the strangest tournament I've ever covered since incredible place Deauville yeah the Casino de Deauville in northern France venue for the 1989 European Open God knows why we were there but still hardly a great footprint of snooker in France these days despite the you know, the gospel being spread was by... Was Fulzi on that trip at that time? I was there. Well, he was yeah, there, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, was honestly, Alan, it was just surreal, honestly, mm. because I've got no frame of reference. I thought well, it must be like this all the time. Crazy, really crazy. It was... Deauville has got a, a wonderful racetrack, and in the, in the summers, it's populated by um, high society in France. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, and I would recommend anyone to go there, but not in February. It was very, very um, off-season and extremely expensive. Very expensive. I remember mm. Eddie Sinclair lost in the last 64, and he went, thank God for that, I couldn't have afforded to reach the final. Doug <laughs> <laughs> Mountjoy had a chicken and chips in his room, and it cost him 45 quid. Yeah. Yeah. 45 quid in 1989 <laughs> for chicken and chips. I remember the breakfast, 30 quid I paid for breakfast one morning in yeah. the hotel. Yeah, yeah. same thing, 30-odd quid. Well, I was... I mean, at the time, I was a starving freelance, and I mean, you know, that's not too far from the from the mark. I was a freelance, and I was sort of partially starving. Long time ago, and I worked it out. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I worked it out that the best way to get food is if you put um, a certain amount of money on uh, at a bet in the casino, you could get like a free soup and some some uh, oh, right. some rolls. So I used to have a like I think it must have been the equivalent of <laughs> ten quid on red or black to get a meal, and I think well, if I lost, I only cost myself 10 quid if I've won I'll get, I'll get double my money kind of thing I don't know whether I was winning all these four crisps maybe yeah <laughs> there was no one watching him I mean that was the whole point I think I saw one French gentleman watching one afternoon I don't think he knew what was going on no. everyone else was just was watching the matches were, were players waiting for their match or maybe a guest of a player yeah the, the intro uh, was done um, by um, a, a, a French guy and John Parrott was playing and um, the guy went through um, the intros and a woman on the front row there's about four of them all sitting together and that was the entire crowd she said can you say that again please we're from Portsmouth <laughs> um, <laughs> Eugene Hughes came walking out at, um, during his mid-session and right. uh, wearing his obviously you know three three-piece suit because he was playing a game with a bow tie and a rather affluent French lady asked him to get, get her a brandy she thought he was a waiter <laughs> yeah. um, the whole thing was just Utterly <laughs> crazy. Why we were there, I will never, ever know. There was no hint uh, whatsoever. No, no rhyme or reason. Yeah, of, of any interest in France at all. The following year, we were also in France at the Maison de Judo in Lyon. Now, I was going to think about that. That actually was a really nice part of the world to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that place. But Very even then, the crowds weren't any good. No. But, uh, yeah, Deauville will never... I don't think we'll ever be beaten in terms of its, its um, surreal nature. There were so many great stories there, though, that week. But the thing about that was, I know you're going to move on now, but the, you know that was probably the wrong place to go when there were plenty of right places to go. I mean, all the years we've 
you know, Belgium has always been a hotbed for snooker. They, they like snooker in Holland as well. And as I say, Iceland, there was there were players. I don't know where they've all gone. We had an Icelandic player at the Crucible, but it seems died off in certain parts of the world. Mm. What, what, what's your next venue? Now? All right, I'm going to keep it simple, and I think we. I don't know about you, Dave, but I think we. I'm going to say Pontin Prestatin. Now, how much snooker has been played there over the years? And it was a venue because it was used not only for the the Pontins Open, which was a you know it was a holiday camp week. Um, and of course, if there, there were tables upstairs, I think eighteen tables upstairs, and six tables in the ballroom, four in one area and two in the other bar. You, you guys know what, what it was like down there. You always wanted to play downstairs. Upstairs, I mean, the tables upstairs were horrendous. I mean, you, the, 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 there was a far table at the back, table seven, table seven, and you had to take a run up to, to break off uh. and get the cue ball back <laughs> to the bunk end. It's the only way, uh, you know. And you slow the water that before you mm. start the, the slowest table. I, I can't think yeah. there's ever been a slower table <laughs> in, ever. Um, but I mean, aside from anything else about that place, if you were playing downstairs in the, the at the festival, there was a professional tournament there. You know, it was it was not just a pro am, and it, people think it sounds like a bit of a knockabout, but it was actually at the time quite big. Even the professional tournament was held in some regard, wasn't it? You know, because there wasn't yeah, that many. Yeah. But there would always be, you know, you'd be playing an important shot, and there'd be a, two or three kids running past you on the shot and coming up to the. He'd be playing a ball, and then a kid's face would look over the top of the table. Just see his nose, like Mr. Chad looking at the uh, the balls, because you know clearly they were on holiday. These people, why would they be? Uh, they weren't bothered about the snooker. Certain families, but it, it was an absolutely fantastic place, and they played matches there at a later date. I mean, you would have been there, Phil. Oh, absolutely. I, I used to lose my two holidays before I got into the, the, this. I, two holidays I used to work for for Ladbrokes for many years. And my two holidays each year, a week at the Open Golf Championship and a week at the Spring Festival of yeah. Saturn. And I had a good run there one year. I nearly got to the uh, to the final. Well, I got to the final of the sheet and nearly got into the last 32 and I lost by the odd frame and I was absolutely devastated. And now, this is not a visual service, but Alan has presented us with a picture. Uh, that is Pontins. Yeah, from, from Pontins and, yeah. and the tables and the... <coughs> just the sheer activity. I mean, and it was a great chance for, for kids and for just amateurs to, to, like say, rub shoulders with, you know, the, the, the pros and... and, and it, quite often, it was after the World Championship, effectively, wasn't it? So yeah. quite often the World Champion might be there. Well, I mean, that picture now, obviously, if, if either one of you guys will, will put mm. that on, on social media, that would be... Given yeah, I'll, I'll, But I'll, the thing I'll is, the thing is uh, about that, when you look at the picture, if you listen to the podcast at the same time, you'll realise the middle tables was a nightmare. Because, I mean, there was, you know, the scoreboard was underneath them. And, I mean, the, the, the cushions were just there to stop the balls going on the floor. They were terrible tables. There's, see if I zoom in, obviously the guys can't see this, but they'll be able to when we put this out. It was those metal... You know, the pockets. Yeah. I mean, almost yeah. like, oh, it's you like know, where brass, the leathers are brass, yeah, brass like yeah. holding on the. I'll just yeah. give a, a look at the. Oh, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, so tables were no good. And downstairs yeah. they were good. I was clearly, I mean, there's a lot of history there. They end up playing qualifiers there, I think, l- later on, that further down the line, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Well, I remember when Jimmy White, one of the first occasions he had to qualify for the Crucible, all the national media turned up and his match was delayed because a, a woman in reception just below where the tables were, were installed um, had inadvertently opened the safe in an incorrect way and there was that one of those situations where there's like this big sort of explosion of dust like a sort of you know yeah. warning kind of thing and all the dust got into the fire alarms and, and the fire alarms went off and it, de- it delayed the well, it was a line. surreal scene wasn't it because you had all these players and obviously they're trying to qualify for the world yeah. championship and there's like Captain Croc 
Zena <laughs> the hyena and all these sort of you know, mm. children's entertainers all stood stood outside. I wanted to because we haven't got that much time left. I wanted to ask from a playing perspective because people have their own ideas, maybe of spectators visiting venues or just seeing them on TV. The best venues to actually play at. Who uh, the bit? Who I'll, I'll pass this one over if Neil. Can well, think I, it. I always used to enjoy playing at the Assembly Rooms Derby. I must say now, why I don't know. And Phil, Phil will know that venue very well. I had good and bad moments there. Um, Phil could probably remember what they all were. But aside from that, I just liked it. Right in the centre of Derby, and it was quite a nice. It was a nice part of the world to be in. Um, quite a big snooker fraternity. I, I immediately think of people like David Rowe, who are from that neck of the woods as well. But there was something about that venue. It's quite atmospheric. Again, I don't think probably before your time. No, I, I played in it. Do okay. you know, I, it's actually the opposite for me, but I'll, I will be honest and say it's only... I don't think I ever won a match in it. I no, no. I played, for that reason, yeah, yeah. I played my first I, I TV match as a pro there in the Yamaha Organs Trophy. I played Bill Werbenick there in a group. I think Doug French was in the group. It wasn't exactly the group of... Uh, it much life in it, you know what I mean? It wasn't the best group of all, but... Um, it was you more often it than when you played Robbie Falvari. Yeah, I played Robbie Falvari <laughs> there and he beat me in about six hours, yeah. And I, 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 to be honest, I let myself down after. I said he was... I said he was uh, painstakingly slow and he was but I shouldn't have said the thing it's come out sour great but there was a lot of history we played there for a number of years I think the venue is no longer there is that right? Yeah burnt down did it though? Yeah I think so Yeah yeah, yeah. I, 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 Moving on to, to answer the question I'm going to go with one of the most obvious the Preston Guild Hall mm-hmm. only you know I had some good times there I had some good good tournaments there got, got a finals I think got final a few semis but uh, it was more when it was the eight table thing that I, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it was World Championship qualifying. I played, I mentioned before, I played Alex Higgins in 92 in the Championship and they were hanging from the rafters. You could not get up, you couldn't move. And, and it had a thing about it that it had an atmosphere. We're talking, you know, we're talking more than 30 years ago. So you've got to bear that in mind. You know, now it would maybe seem a bit dank and damp and, you know, for whatever reason. And with good reason, probably it's old. But back then it was like a hive, wasn't it? It was mm. the hive of, the UK Championship and all that went with that, the, the Higgins final, the famous fight, the Willie Thorne, Miss Blue, all that stuff happened there. And the world, the qualifying was brilliant for the World Championship. Fourth table, and it was busy. Mm. And people could walk round, could watch, and that, I, I yeah. always hold great memories. I think the up. last frame ever played there, and there were a lot of frames over a number of years. I mean, mm. over, over 30 <coughs> years they played there, I'd say. And the last time I ever played there, I think, was Ronnie's Thousand Century. I can't think they ever played there because it closed down soon after, and I think it's still right, yeah. lying dormant the place, isn't it? But um, you know, uh, I think that was the last ever frame played at that venue, and uh, there was some, as Alan quite rightly says, it was a true venue with a multitude of stories about I, it. I, I, yeah, sorry for no. I honestly was going to say before you said it, Preston Guildhall, with the caveat that it was when it was the eight tables at the UK Championship, they used to play six days on those eight tables to get down to the TV stages. And when it was eight tables, you got all the big stars playing, big crowds, and you could walk around and see all of the games. It was so, so good. It really was brilliant in there. I don't think we've ever recaptured that since. It was just the perfect place at the time for that particular format. But also, sorry, Phil, also, I think, and you've touched on this, Alan, as well, it helped give Thomas an identity, having a permanent venue that was, I mean, the Hexagon Reading, the Grand Prix was always there, obviously the Crucible, we talked about Goffs, there's been a few others. I think one of the issues now is we have a lot of tournaments, which is good, but they move around, so it's hard to establish an identity. We're in Cheltenham for the World Grand Prix, there's already talk it won't be here next year, there might be another tournament here, but the, the sort of interchangeability of it, it's hard to actually 
for the, in the for the public to kind of understand what these tournaments are and, and, and for the identity to be established. And I think that's a bit of a shame because it didn't used to be like that. Mm. Could I do one more What's on the, the, the... It's a Europe one, and a European one, and it's France again. I played it and there's a couple of reasons what I'll come to in a minute. I played, it was an invitation event. I think it was an eight-man thing. Henry was there, Jimmy White, Martin Clark, Tony Drago. I was there myself. Anyway, it was in northern France, like Deauville, but it was in a place called Epernay. Anyway, it's a Champagne region in northern France. So we went there. We, we went to, cut a long story, we went to a Champagne house, Mercier Champagne house, really posh. And it was fantastic. Anyway, we sampled the local tipple, as you would, and it was brilliant. Uh, the tournament went on. Stephen Hendry won it, but one of the re- or two of the reasons um, I wanted to say um, it was really unusual for me. I think I was about twenty-one, going to northern France, didn't speak any French, and when you, I went down, it was a really quaint little place, middle of nowhere, which was good because you went down and the old guy smoking a cigar in the coffee shop, going oh, and reading reading the newspaper <laughs> with onions and all that yeah. stuff. <laughs> really, really <laughs> there, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> no. It, it was brilliant, and you know, yeah, creme cafe, you know, play, all, all that. Sort of so, so we're at the tournament, and just when Stephen um, Folsey mentioned Ronnie's uh, the last frame ever at the Guild Hall, that might have been, you know, when you get a moment in time when you go, he's just right, he just looks right, he's playing. Right. That was maybe a moment in time I thought with Ronnie's career where you go, does it get any? better than this you know the thousandth ton the way he did it to win a tour I mean you know it happened so we're in that tournament in France and Stevens playing this I think it was 90 it was either 92 or 3 right in the middle of when he's winning the world championships and I'm sitting watching he was he might have been playing the late great Wally Thorne actually I can't quite remember and you know that way you're sitting and I go I don't think a cue action gets any better than this this you know, you're watching something in sport. We're, we're all sports fans, and you watch it. And Stephen's our pal and colleague and whatever. So I'm not bumming it. I, it just looked right. I got. I, I sitting and I thought, Jesus, that is just like you know. If you could design a action, and he missed nothing, and he won the. T- you know, it was going nuts. So it was. It was. Um, yeah, northern France. It was a brilliant place, and and a cool place to go. Yeah. Mm. You were saying about Iceland, it only ever got uh, light. Of course, Martin Clark played an exhibition tour in Finland in uh, June, and it, it never got dark. He couldn't get to sleep. I went there, yeah, I went yeah. to Iceland when it was that time of the year as well, when it was light uh, all all day and all night. Now, look, Dave, what is your favourite venue? I must ask you, because you've kept, very, sort of kept your cards close to your chest. <laughs> well, you? No, I'm, I'm to the Alan Towers of this. I'm, <coughs> what I'm, is I'm, your favourite venue? This well, is the question I'm putting to you. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously everyone sees it from a different perspective. I'm not a player, um, as a, as a sort of, I mean, I, I suppose you think about where you are, what's, what's happening outside the venue, actually, what the things to do. Yeah. I, I always, always enjoy going to Berlin, actually. Yes, yeah, um, I think it's a fan, fantastic city, fascinating city, um, lots to see, um, friendly as hell. Um, you know, obviously the snooker people there always welcome us. There's a lovely atmosphere outside the arena, sort of in the foyer. It's got it's got the best sort of merchandise stand and food stand probably of any tournament. So I've always enjoyed uh, that trip. I mean, it's boring to say the Crucible, isn't it? But I mean, it's in such a special place that you know. And we 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 commentated didn't we, on the, on the mm. end of the final last year. That was a wonderful it, experience. Yeah. Um, 
But I think, yeah, Berlin, I've always liked Clandidno. I think that's a, yeah. that's a, a nice mm-hmm. part of the world. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's not always about the building, is it? It's about what's around it. Um, and the, the sense that you've been welcomed in, the fact that people want you there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think, I know you're going to wind this up mm-hmm. soon, I get, but I do think you're right, though, because, you know, you look at you know, the, um, the, the, the Crucible, you look at York, the Barbican, which is the home of the, of the UK Championship, and the Masters, the, 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 the relatively new home is the Ali Pali. That's one of the reasons they're great events, aside from everything else, is the venues are absolutely set in stone now. I mean, obviously, there's been a few reasons why they've ended up there from their original places, except for the Crucible. But mm. this is what you need, isn't it? You need yeah. venues to host events and, and, and help them grow. Yeah, and, and I think one of the sort of, without wishing to end on a, on a negative, I think one of the issues is, you know, obviously, I mean, venues, we're not, we don't book venues. It's not easy to, we don't know how hard it is. But we do end up in some that maybe are a little bit sort of cut price in a way, and they don't always enhance the, the status of the tournaments. Um, that's not true of every venue by any means, but uh, you know. Anyway, we're, uh, maybe in twenty years we'll look back on, on 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 other venues. And if you join us next time, thank you everybody. By, by the way, if you join us next time, you can hear Alan's Keith Harris story in full. <laughs> So that was the chat, and thanks to the guys for talking about their favourite venues. And now we move on to the World Grand Prix, and we say, as we've said already a couple of times this season, well done to Mark Allen. An extraordinary final. Um, 7-2 didn't look like it would be. He was in control. Judd Trump, at that point, had no answer. He found answers. A couple of centuries, played a lot better in the evening. From 8-4 down, levelled at 8-all. From 9-8 down, levelled at 9-all. The decider, he looked like he was going to win. Mark Allen missed a couple, understandably under pressure. But Trump was also under pressure because obviously in a decider, you know, both players are looking to win the match. And Trump had done all that hard work to get back into it. Eventually missed a yellow. Mark Allen made a steely little break and uh, is the champion. He becomes the 10th player to win at least three ranking titles in the same season. It's worth saying, by the way, Stephen Hendry, and we'll get on to Hendry shortly uh, for other reasons, of course, because he appeared in another programme over the weekend. Stephen Hendry, seven times in his career, won at least three ranking titles in a season. Seven different seasons he did that. Extraordinary. Uh, Steve Davies did it five times. Mark Williams, John Higgins, Ronnie O'Sullivan and Judd Trump himself have done it three times. Worth saying Trump, of course, holds the record because he did it in one season. He won six. Uh, Mark Selby uh, did it two different seasons. And Ding Junhui and Neil Robertson won each. So, legends there, and uh, Mark Allen joins that list. It's some list to be on. He's the 10th player to do it, and of course, <laughs> can still possibly win more, uh, because more tournaments will be in, in, of course, the players in the Tour Championships, and various other events as well, not least the shootout this week. And he goes to the World Championship, clearly, as somebody who will be one of the big favourites uh, this season. So, a complete turnaround in fortunes for him, now a multiple winner. Um, my view on Judd Trump is, I think in some ways, he shouldn't have won the Masters, but did, and I think in a lot of ways he should have won this tournament and didn't. So in the end he comes away with a trophy. Maybe it's the wrong one in some ways, but that, that's how snooker can, sometimes can be. It was a really good final, our first deciding frame finish in a ranking final since the Tour Championship last season. So we were due one, we got one, and two great weeks. The Masters final was brilliant, the World Grand Prix final uh, was also brilliant. <laughs> now, uh, Callum Law and Alpha Bonzi love to uh, share their thoughts on tournaments, and we're going to hear from both of them about the World Grand Prix. So Callum, first of all. So I'm just emailing in the aftermath of the World Grand Prix. I enjoyed the tournament as a whole, but the final was quite something. The decider was a properly twitchy affair. Mark Allen looked totally gone, but when he was handed a chance, he should never have had. He grasped it with both hands. 
I know the balls were nicely spread, but it takes nerve to knock them in, especially when prior to that he must have been thinking he'd blown it. Allen's displays all week were quite remarkable. The performance against Jack Mazowski in the quarter-final was such that maybe Allen should be asking Cliff Thorburn if he can inherit his, ni- inherit his nickname, because that was certainly grinding. Not old enough to see the likes of Thorburn, Steve Davis and Terry Griffiths in their pomp, but the way Allen played in the World Grand Prix to me was reminiscent of John Higgins and Mark Selby at their best. Over the course of the week, Allen displayed an iron will, great resilience, granite safety and composure under pressure. Credit as well to Judd Trump for his comeback, even when he's well behind. Trump seems to have an in- intimidation factor, which can put even the best players under pressure. I think we saw that in the final, and Ronnie O'Sullivan is probably the only other player in the game at the moment who can strike that fear into players, even when three or four frames behind. On a different note, I thought there was an interesting point made last week about young players coming through and the way they play, taking on too many big shots, etc., by my reckoning, if you look back over the history of the game, Stephen Hendry and possibly Neil Robertson are the only players to have enjoyed sustained success over a number of years with a game plan, which is basically all-out attack. If you look at other really successful players in snooker, the likes of Ray Reardon, Steve Davis, John Higgins, Mark Williams and Mark Selby have all had the measured all-round game and played the percentages. Even Ronnie O'Sullivan and Judd Trump had to learn to mix it in the safety and tactical departments to become consistent winners, while going further back, even Alex Higgins and Jimmy White's best days were when they developed an all-round game. Even now, Neil Robertson hold his own when it comes to safety, but for me, Neil and Stephen Hendry are the two exceptions in that both have enjoyed sustained success over a period of years when their approach has been very much to blitz their opponents off the table with an all-out attacking approach. That but that perhaps should show young players that it's extremely difficult to progress in snooker if your shot selection is too bold and you can't compete in the tactical side of the game. Apologies for the length of this email, but thanks for the great podcast. No, no need to apologise, Callum, all very well thought through. Um, and the two things go together. Mark Allen, I thought it was unfair. I mean, again, the criticism, you only really see it on social media, which is not, um, a, not a sort of, uh, a sort of reality, really. It's a very specific medium and it attracts very specific, um, sort of behaviour, if you like. But, you know, some people were, uh, critical of Allen for, you know, playing the percentages, being risk averse at times which didn't last in the final, actually. In the final session, you know, he did go for his shots. Um, but during the week against Lazowski, certainly, he did play that sort of, yeah, grinding game. But here's the thing, OK? The week started, or, or not didn't start, but halfway through the week we had the announcement about the charges being levelled against these players have been suspended. So you have there the suggestion that some players have not been trying to win. I don't really think you can criticise a player for trying too hard to win. There's no such thing, OK? He was just trying to play the best game he could to give himself the best chance he could of winning a tournament. And by the way, he won the tournament. Um, and Mark Allen showed all sides of his game. He had a 1-4-1 last night. You know, he had a lot of breaks. Um, you know, at, at times, yes, it wasn't as attractive, if you like that sort of all-out attacking game, it wasn't as attractive to watch as it could be. But here's the thing, he's played attractive snooker in the past and not won tournaments. He's found a way to win, and it worked. He won. End of story. Um... Alpha Bonzi, so he, Alpha has his usual three questions. Uh, I'm going to slightly uh, uh, change a word here because you know we, you know, we are. I would say we're a family podcast. We're not really, are we? But anyway, he says uh, number one. He says another roller coaster week in Cheltenham. My three questions are number one: despite shaking like a, let's say a shaking dog, his words. Uh, how did Mark Allen find the inner steel to withstand Trump's comeback and take the chequered flag? Well. I'll answer that. I mean, only he could tell you, obviously. But um, he has been working with a sports psychologist. Um, just watching Alan in the chair. It's always interesting, Alan McManus says this, to watch players in the chair. 
you know, Judge Trump had that big fluke in the final session, won the frame off it. Alan's reactions, you wouldn't know really what's happening. If you just had a camera on him, he just sits calmly. He doesn't react. Uh, he got a bit rosy cheek towards the end, but I mean, you know, it was getting dramatic. It was getting exciting. But overall, he, he seemed to keep his emotions inside, and, and that's what he's been good at all week um, and all season, and it seems to be working for him. Uh, number two from Alpha, did the Alan Lazowski match show bad refereeing, allowing herself to be pushed around for eight minutes over a free ball, and good refereeing of firmly telling the players to stop tippy-tapping or there'll be a re-rack? Well, of course, this was... Uh, the referee was pro-Latino, Velichkova. The, ref- the um, incident was about whether there was a free ball or not, um, whether Jack Lazowski had been left a free ball or not in that fourth frame against Mark Allen. The first thing to say is... I don't think anybody could actually 100% say one way or the other. It was very tight. Um, obviously, the players, the referee, right down the line. Here's my take on it. It went on too long. Uh, it went on... There was eight minutes there when, when no ball was struck. And it was too long. The referee... We're not going to criticise anyone personally, so let's just talk in general. The referee is in charge of the match. They have to make a decision and they have to... Yes, they can listen to the players, and the players can give their feedback. But ultimately, the player, the, the referee has to be firm. They have to say, OK, I think it's this. I've made my decision. You now have to get on with it. Um, because, you know, you can't, you can't just stand there indefinitely chatting. It was a difficult call. I don't know whether the call, which ultimately, it wasn't taken anyway, the free ball. But I think the referee, well, the referee did say, I think that's a free ball. I don't know whether that was right or wrong because I wasn't right down the line of it. But ultimately, the referee has to be firm and has to give a decision. Um, and it, it took a long time to get to that. Mark Allen persuaded Jack Lazarki that it wasn't. Um, there was He suggested Jack didn't really know, understand the rule. I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, I mean, he's been playing long enough to understand it. Jack's a nice guy, and he seemed to back down. Um... Well, he did back down. That's just a fact. In terms of the the um, the re-rack situation, she, she was, I think, right to um, say three so- shots each because it was going nowhere. But uh, if you saw Alan's angle, Alan McManus for ITV did make the point, and it's a good one, that in that scenario, the the last shot has to be by the player who's in front. So Mark Allen was 20-odd in front, I think 23 points in front. Jack Lazowski, the way it unfolded, had the last shot. Now, Jack didn't do this, but he could, on the last shot, have just rolled back into them. In which case, it hasn't been resolved, has it? (laughs) We're back to square one. And the referee in that scenario could say, well, okay, you've not resolved it, it's a re-rep. Mark Allen has to have the last shot because it's up to him as a player in front to resolve it. Other than that, it it was a good call. I think she did the right thing. And like I say, I'm not going to criticise any specific referee. I just felt that the overall um, the free ball business just went on a bit too long. And that's it. But uh, whether the, the call was right or wrong, whether it was a free ball or not, I couldn't say with any confidence. And I, I think I've said before, I wouldn't want to be a referee either. Um, and Alpha's final point, how and why did ITV lose interest in snooker in 1993 and 2001? And how does snooker make sure it doesn't happen again? Just having a sip of a refreshing beverage before I answer that. Well, I could answer those questions, actually. 93. It, now, if you're listening outside the UK, this is going to be a bit kind of convoluted. In fact, if you're listening inside the UK, it will be. But ITV 
uh, more so then really was made up of regional companies, okay? So lots of different regional companies and they would come together as part of a network to broadcast at times the same programmes, but at other times they would have their own opt-out programmes. And it was becoming increasingly difficult back in the 90s to schedule snooker. Some regions wouldn't show certain snooker programmes, others would join late. Snooker's big problem is that for broadcasters is that you don't know what time it's going to finish. You know a football match will be 90 minutes. You know, cricket you can work out. Most sports you can work out roughly, give or take half an hour here and there. Snooker's one of those sports. Tennis is is similar. We saw Andy Murray <laughs> uh, played at four in the morning in Australia. It's one of those sports that you can't um, possibly know how long it's going to last, apart actually from the shootout where it's timed. So for that reason, it became more difficult to schedule, and in the end, it became more trouble than it was worth. They had live football um, at the time, um, which took up Sunday afternoons, and because of the scheduling problems, the ratings have fallen off a bit as well, so it fell out of favour. Sky came in at that point as well, and they took some of those tournaments, so the tournaments continued albeit on a pay channel that, at that time, not many people had. Uh, 2001, um, it had been on... I think it might have gone on a couple of years more than 2001, but anyway, it had been on um, ITV Digital, which had launched, and again, not many, many people at that point had it. So it was on a dedicated channel that not a lot of people had access to, and the same kind of uh, issues arose around scheduling. At that point, The I think it was on digital... Um, and broadcasting historians will know more about this than me, but I'm pretty sure it kind of went under, <laughs> effectively. Um, but since ITV4 was established, ITV4 is not a sports channel, but that's where all the sport kind of ends up. Um, since that was established, then there's no doubt that uh, it's become the home of snooker on ITV. And of course, the great thing is, and it was on ITV3 a couple of times because there was other sports as well, but the great thing is it's free view. So in the UK, that means that if you if you have a television, you can get access to it, um, and yeah, it, it's uh, it's a great sort of home for the sport. So when you say how how can snooker make sure it doesn't happen again, I don't think there's any imminent prospect of it disappearing because it does really well for ITV. One thing I would say is, that, and this is a general point, World Snooker Tour need to make sure that all the broadcasters are um, satisfied with. The torments they're given, the venues they're given, and just the way they're treated in general. There is a perception in snooker that the BBC are very much held to a kind of higher pedestal than the others. I don't think that's particularly healthy because, you know, you don't want to lose broadcasters. But in, in the main, in the main, there's a good relationship between World Snooker Tour and all the broadcasters. And that's why there's so much snooker on the telly. Now, we always like to hear from people who've been to tournaments, and Liam McMullen has indeed been to Cheltenham for the World Grand Prix. So let's see what he's got to say about his trip to the World Grand Prix. So I thought I'd write him with a couple of thoughts regarding Thursday at the Grand Prix in Cheltenham. It's my first time I've been since the last time I was in Cheltenham. And firstly, a small gripe about the fan radios. Now these are the ones that, you, that the players, the people can in the audience can listen to the commentary. Okay, so Liam says, when I was last at the event in Cheltenham and I purchased two, I was told by the staff that they would essentially last forever. And once you've bought one, uh, once you kept it, you'd be able to take it to all future snooker events. With this in mind, I spent money on batteries for them before we got there. But once in the foyer, I was told they'd changed completely to new white ones and that they wouldn't work at all anymore. I failed to see much of a difference in them myself. I perhaps don't expect them to last forever, but if this is the case, I was a little bit miffed 
they didn't even perhaps they didn't even have perhaps half price for a new one if you exchange the old one but there we are uh, now, lastly, free ball gate from the Jack Lazowski Mark Allen match. So this is what we've just been talking about. He says, I don't want a referee bash at all, but you have to feel that Pro Latina Velichkova has to be stronger in this incident. I'm not just uh, that one, not just that one, but the whole game. She seemed to be asking for approval from the players rather than confirming they were happy with the decisions. Mark Allen is well within his right to not think he's a free ball. If I was in Jack's position, I can imagine I would have wanted to be as sporting as he was. But ultimately, how it was allowed to be discussed that much is crazy. Being in the arena was something to behold. It almost seemed like the referee uh, needing... Uh, now, this sentence has gone a little bit haywire. It almost seemed like the referee needing to be there... Didn't need to be there, maybe that means. Anyway, and those two were refereeing the match themselves. For me, she shouldn't have allowed Jack to feel compelled to be that sporting, but there we are. Well, to be fair, without going on about it again, I think that was the general view. Um, the, the, the Amber Haas was there. He's obviously a legendary referee himself. Many world finals and other big occasions. He's the sort of referee's assessor, and I'm sure he'll take all this on board. And look, we, ha we need new referees, and they have to gain experience. So I'm not criticising anyone in particular, but as a general point, you're live on telly. You can't just have a situation like that dragging out the way it did, even though, go back to what I said earlier, it was uh, a tough call. Now, Gordon. So I've been listening to the podcast every week. Even if I haven't had an opportunity to write in, it's always great to get your views on all sorts of things to do with snooker. I'm currently watching the World Grand Prix final, and as I write this, it looks like Alan will probably win the title. By the time you read this, a winner will be known, and I'll either look silly in this comment or a great profit. Now, of course, Gordon doesn't tell us there whether he's right again at 7-2 or maybe, you know, 8 each. I suspect it's more likely 7-2, but anyway, we continue. The Masters was a great tournament, well supported by fans and its prestige, and so much higher now than it was before the WST branding in 2020. Now, it feels like a proper invitational event instead of just another event in terms of the setup and the VIP package is offered. I'm going to try and get some tickets for the 2025 Masters simply because of the job I'm in where I'd have to plan for it well in advance. And I can't do that for 2024 now since all tickets will have sold out by now. Now, Gordon doesn't say this, but he may be a spy. I don't know, but he may be. Anyway, we continue. Uh, obviously, <laughs> obviously, after the Masters concluded, we rolled into the World Grand Prix and started with the awful news that all ten suspended players are to be charged and have to go to a hearing to decide their fate. I massively applaud ITV for the coverage of it. They addressed it in the first ten minutes on Monday afternoon, got it out of the way with interviews and analysis, then ignored the entire topic afterwards, as it should be. One question I have to ask about all this, there's a lot of confusion about what being concerned in fixing a match or matches means. The BBC article only gives vague definition of relates to matches a player has not played in. Does this just mean that it's a variant of failure to report knowledge of match fixing or something more than that it would be useful to know more since no one seems to have a clear definition well i, I know what you're saying but I'm, I'm actually i think it would be helpful actually to to part that and wait until the hearings because it will all come out in the wash exactly what people have done people i think have done different things so a broad brush description possibly not helpful at this point uh, we'll wait for those outcomes Gordon continues, no matter the outcome of the investigation, it's clear that all of their careers will be tainted for an extremely long time, even if a player does not get any punishment by the hearing. The fact they've been accused will hang over their careers. But I agree with those that it's good to get this out in the open. I hope the previous tournament winners like Xiaoxing Tong and Yambing Tao will be able to recover from the damage done and go on to have great careers in the sport, however. Well, again, Gordon, we'll wait and see exactly you know, how it, how it pans out. 
He says, on a different topic, there have been rumours suggesting the Turkish Masters might not happen. It's only one tweet from Mark Williams, though, but is there anything to suggest there won't be an event in Turkey this year? Despite my criticisms about the carpet colour at the time, <laughs> it was still a great event and well supported, and helped to build a new audience for our sport, an area that's been traditionally ignored by the main tour for a long time. I will be curious if there's anything to what Mark has said, because if there is, I would hope WST are trying to find a replacement event, as the Turkish Masters is the final chance for the vast majority of the tour to get their ranking sealed up before the World Championship qualifying rounds. Here's the thing, OK, if you go in the players' room, you will hear all sorts of rumours. You know, literally, it's it's sort of conspiracy central, because the players, <laughs> they're sat round bored a lot of the time, and they're just talking, and they've heard things... Some of them do turn out to be correct, some of them don't. I would say most of them don't. In the case of Turkey, there has been chatter that um, it wasn't guaranteed to be on because of the, uh, the local economy and the difficulty actually raising a lot of money to put on an event. It was announced initially as a five-year deal. Um, this is year two. It is going to be on. Uh, the qualifying um, entry forms have been sent out. Will Snooker have said it will be on, so it will be on. Um, I, I did hear the same rumours as Mark that it might not be, but rumours do not always turn out to be true. So the Turkish Masters goes ahead. Uh, and final comment from Gordon. They said, I really enjoyed watching the World Grand Prix this week on ITV and kudos uh, to them for doing what the BBC cannot do, run a dedicated social, uh, snooker account on Twitter. It's a shame the BBC now stands out for having virtually no snooker presence on social media at all. Their only presence just their generic BBC Sport account that is spammed out with F1, football and more mainstream sports. I do wish they would have an about turn on their decision to sunset their at BBC Snooker Twitter account and get back on the platform. But I doubt it will happen. Thanks for all your continued good work. Thanks for all the continued good work you do on Eurosport and ITV and with this podcast as well. Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you, Gordon. Well, that's very kind of you. And, uh, well, I, I, uh, far be it from me to... Uh, say this, but I was involved in that Twitter account. I did have uh, input beforehand and indeed during, and we enjoyed doing it, actually. A little team of us, um, all contributing. It, it made sense, really, um, you know, to augment the coverage by putting stuff up there. If you've not seen it, at ITV Snooker is the handle. It's at ITV Snooker. The idea is to just do extra stuff on there. So we put up interviews. Um, not every interview that gets recorded makes the coverage because of timings and, and is the time in the schedule. But we can put them on there. I put some stats up. We put behind the scenes pictures up, including a video of Stephen Hendry being revealed as being on The Mass Singer. That was an extraordinary business. If you don't know what The Mass Singer is, it's an ITV show, Saturday night show, where celebrities um, go on singing songs, but they're, they're in disguise. So you don't know who they are. You have to guess who they are, and then it gets revealed. Stephen Hendry has had to keep the seat for months that he was on it. And he, as, as he said... It was unlikely anyone would guess because he'd be the last person ever to go on a thing like that. But he did go on. And by the way, his voice was quite good. He beat Lulu in round one. <laughs> he beat Lulu, who's a singer. Uh, and then he lost to a baked potato. So this is what the world's come to. Stephen Hendry beat Lulu and lost to a baked potato. You don't get this on Q-Tracker, good, good as it is. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yes, the ITV Twitter account. So, yeah, so we put up, uh, you know, polls and just comments and, and just trying to kind of... Get some more interest going on, on the social media side. World Snooker Tour, very kindly filmed a few previews that I was involved with, with the pundits and the guys there. And yeah, it was, uh, it's been a success. We've had about 5,000 followers so far. Um, and, you know, hopefully it'll grow. It's worth saying though, and <coughs> it's all, it's worth doing and it, it's, uh, it's been fun to do. But 5,000 followers, 
we, there were programs where we were getting half a million viewers. So what that tells you is that's 1% of the audience have chosen to follow us on Twitter. So 99% of the people who watched the programs said, actually, Twitter's not for me. And this is what I was saying, I've said before, we maybe take social media a bit too seriously because it's not the majority of people, not even close, not even close. And if you see on there, you know, uh, 50, 50 comments that are negative about something, that's 1% of the 1%. So it's statistically almost irrelevant. Um, but anyway, for those who do enjoy social media, hopefully you'll enjoy that uh, that account and you can follow us there uh, when, when the tournaments resume. Let's go back to that Mark Allen Lazarski match because Lewis Perney has got some comments to make here. He said, I watched the Alan Lazarski match with excellent commentary by yourself as always. Well, thank you, Lewis. I think we can all agree there needs to be some progress on ball replacement after foul and a miss and possibly free ball decisions. I've long been a fierce advocate of modernisation in snooker. So over the Christmas break, I hooked up a cheap webcam and tried to implement something to aid the referee. Although it's not intended to be a finished solution, it's clear to me that a cheap and efficient device will be easy to produce if the will is there. Now, you can watch this uh, this demonstration. Um, s- s- uh, the address is snookerlewis.com backslash ball underscore tracker. So that's snookerlewis.com backslash ball underscore tracker. Incidentally, the whole website contains a lot of very radical ideas including a global ranking system, 7,500 plus players, and various discussions about tournament formats, all illustrated with demos. I appreciate change is very difficult in any organisation. I spend most of my time doing IT for banks. But I do think the snooker community needs to be at least aware of the possibilities and debate things through. Despite recent setbacks, match fixing, etc., I remain a passionate advocate that snooker can still be relevant in the 21st century. I'd be interested in your views and those of your any of your colleagues or listeners. I'm a devotee of the Snooker Scene podcast and haven't missed an episode. Well, that's kind of you. Well, it, it'd be interesting if people want to watch this and then uh, get back to us. Um, they can do. Uh, yes, it, on, on the, the basic um, point you make is correct, I think. There does need to be some thought given to how this c- can be improved. In the commentary box, you get to sit behind the marker who's helping the referee. The screen they've got, first of all, is no good, OK? It's not, the definition is terrible on it. So when they're trying to work out, you know, whether the cue ball is, is back correctly or not, it's actually very difficult. Um, the sharpness isn't there. It's very antiquated. It looks bad. Come on, we can do better than this, surely. Now, I did watch your video, uh, video Lewis. It's quite hard to uh, explain it exactly sort of off the top of my head. And when I've, when I've read your description, it's quite hard to explain it because it's very, very detailed, which I admire. You put a lot of thought into it. So what I would suggest is people go and watch it and then give their feedback. Um, it involves code and all sorts of things um, and cameras. But whether this is specifically um, the way to do it, I, you know, I couldn't say. But certainly something needs to happen. And there's other, you're quite right. On the website, there's all sorts of other things which uh, we don't have time to discuss now. But maybe you could you could let us know specifically which ones you would like, like us to discuss in the future. And we could maybe turn our hands towards it. Our hands? What does that mean? <laughs> our thoughts. Our thoughts. Uh, we've just got a, a completely different topic. Uh, Christine. Now, we're asking for ira- irrational dislikes of players. But this is, Christine has uh, been a bit more positive, gone the other way. She says, I know it's the opposite of what you asked for, but the podcast last week made me think about my r- irrational, long-standing love of Peter Ebden. 
Most times I see or read an interview with him, he shares views or information about his life outside snooker that make me doubt him, and I often hear people use him as the classic example of slow, tedious match play. When I see him on TV, however, I always catch myself thinking how lovely he is. A colleague from work once brought me a Peter Ebden fridge magnet back from a trip to the Crucible. <laughs> Who knew such things existed? Uh, she, she says, I, I went into a box somewhere when that colleague was sacked for stealing money from the company. Now, this has got a, this is, this is a film. Never mind, never mind an irrational like of a player. This is, this, I'm going to bring up Netflix here. Let's just remind ourselves of that sentence. He went into a box somewhere when that colleague was sacked for stealing money from the company. I think, with, I think, with this new golden age of Peter Ebden on TV, I'll try and find it again and put it back up in the kitchen. Maybe new merchandise could include an updated version featuring the comfy jumper he now usually sports rather than the blue waistcoat of the original one. I'm not convinced the world needs a naked snooker player calendar, but a fully clothed version with the usual suggestions of Ronnie, Selby, etc. should have at least three months of Ebden and a few Neil Folds ones too. <laughs> Neil's been dragged into this. He said, I can't wait... For, Nor for Northern Ireland's Mark Allen to win the Worlds this year, really hoping he plays Jack Lazowski in the final so I can get a good long Ebden fix. Well, uh, you've revealed a lot about yourself there, Christine, but the, I'm very interested in this person who stole the money. <laughs> what, what, what were the circumstances there? Uh, maybe they stole the fridge magnet. We don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying they did, you know. But, uh, but maybe they did. Sam Cole. A respotted black during the first round match at the Masters between Ryan Day and Judd Trump gave pundits of both BBC and Eurosport the chance to bring out one of my pet hates, the old cliché of the modern way to play the shot is side-to-side -side safety. Do you have any knowledge of when the modern way came into existence? I'm 28 years old and I can't remember a time when the up-and-down shot was still a thing. In fact, I'm not even sure I've ever seen that shot played in a professional match. I just checked on YouTube for classic respot examples. The 1998 Masters final was the oldest I could find. And Henry plays the side-to-side -side with no mention from the commentators of, ooh, this is a modern shot. Not doubting that the up and down safety ever existed, but if the side to side shot has been around for at least as long as its predecessor, then I think it really should be time to stop calling it the modern way. Now, and everyone can just agree it's the way. In all seriousness, I would really love to know when the side to side was first played in a professional game and when the up and down lost its popularity. Love the podcast as always. Yours pedantically, Sam Cole. Well, thank you, Sam. Your pedantry is uh, very much welcome on this podcast. I don't know exactly when um, this became the way to play. I suspect there was a sort of crossover period, so people still would have played the up and down as this established itself. Now it's pretty much the only way um, you see it. Uh, although, having said that, you know, I've seen... I mean, Mark Williams at, at times tried to cut it in. Um, there have been other occasions where people have played a slightly different shot, but this this is the one that seems to now be... Uh, you know, the double, for example, the long double, but this is the one that now seems to be um, favoured. I don't know exactly when it came in. You're probably right when people say the modern way. But, I mean, you know, without wishing to get involved in a philosophical discussion about time, you know, in the grand sweep of history, 30 years ago is recent, isn't it? <laughs> uh, we're veering into areas I think we don't need to here. We'll end this week with Ian Ianar, who I think I always, name I always pronounce incorrectly, so apologies. Anyway, just to say, I thought your last podcast episode was excellent. You have a real clarity of thought on all aspects of snooker. Love listening to your responses to all emails. Thanks. Well, thank you. Uh, my own thoughts on the future of snooker. I'd love to see WST contribute maybe 50% of the cost of snooker tables to allow people with pubs, small businesses, office space, cooperatives to get a table or two. They could recoup the costs of the table over a long-term loan to the business. It would take money investment, but I think that qualified leads 
businesses with good business plans, with the right promotion, would generate money over time. And with the right support, I see the Guinness quality team vans parked outside pubs across Ireland. It would be great to have occasional visits from trained WST reps performing quality audits. I'm not talking about having a snooker club in every village, and the audits could be just twice a year, but a reasonable spread of WST-sponsored clubs would allow accessibility of the sport to, to new entrants across a lot of countries. It would surely make a difference to the future of the game, if only to promote higher viewerships and maybe the occasional gifted player that goes through an academy system. Well, just on this point, um, the problem is... Well, there's two problems. One, it's not actually WST's purview to, devote the, to, to develop the grassroots. They promote the professional tour. The WPBSA, that's their responsibility. So if this was going to be done down to them. I think the problem with it is, you know, where do you draw the line? Do you, does every business who wants a snooker table in store get get money? Because that's a great way to go skint <laughs> in the in the short term. Um, and it, would it be global? I mean, the, the demand for it, if the scheme was announced, would be huge. And then you have to decide, okay, if we're not going to give it to everybody. It's a bit like the furlough scheme during COVID. If we're not going to give it to everyone, who do we give it to? How do you prioritise? So it would be very complicated, I think. Um, we continue. It says, all the greats of snooker will have picked up a queue at a quite a young age. And, and to think that so many of those old snooker clubs that are now closed locally just needed a bit of investment. To see WST promotion material on the walls would have been good for the sport. Support for weekly blitzes, a club ladder, website space. From branding and product placement perspectives, it would only promote the game through WST. Also, TV room in the club. With the best of live snooker streaming and classic matches replays, WST could consolidate the various streaming services as a pay-for account for the WST-sponsored clubs. There'd be a reason to stick around with your buddy for an orange juice before uh, waiting for it, while waiting for a table or after a few frames. And like yourself, I don't always get the golf and tennis analogy made by players. Why not talk about weightlifting, archery, judo, cross-country skiing, mountain biking, or indeed chess, which I call digital snooker and snooker analogue chess. It's easy to compare your car to the guy who's a Ferrari on the other side of town. Snooker's bloom in the 80s was an outlier, but it does show the potential. I'd love to see Q Sports in the Olympics too. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, the players compare snooker to those sports because they're individual sports where people earn a lot more money. And in a way, it's kind of you know, obvious. You know, everyone, I guess, wants to earn more. And I guess there's frustration when you see a tennis player who doesn't win tournaments and maybe he's well down the rankings, you know, earning a lot more. But that's, you're comparing different sports with different backgrounds and different sponsors and, and, and just, that are just different full stop. So it, it's not really help, helpful. Um, you're quite right. Your idea for the snooker club thing is a good one, but as I say, it would, it would take a huge amount of, um, money, I think, and it's whether, people feel that that is the you know the the right way to spend it i suppose we'll leave it there it's the shootout this week so people can pretend they're not watching it when they are and all that you know i mean the, the arguments around that are so t tedious now you know watch it don't watch it it's up to you but the people who do watch it will enjoy it because it is a fun four days obviously being a ranking event is controversial but it is well a it's a way of ensuring the top names playing it, although they're not all actually. Oh, Sullivan, Trump, Robertson, Higgins, they're not playing in it. Uh, but, but also it's going to be a, a boost, rankings-wise, potentially to someone. And it could make a big difference, particularly if you're down the list and, you, you know, your tour place is, is uh, struggling. It's the only 1-2-8 event that's played on the same table. Everyone has the same chance on the same table, albeit in a sort of chaotic environment with different rules. I quite like it. I wouldn't want more than four days of it, but it's enjoyable at the time. 
And, uh, yeah, if you're going along, let us know how you feel it is as a live event. Um, and, yeah, we will, uh, we'll see how it pans out. It's, it, at the moment, it's a very busy time in the snooker world, and that's good. Um, it's going to be like this all the way to the World Championship. So strap yourselves in, whatever that means. Um, we're proud members of the sports, we're proud members of the sports social network. Check out their other podcasts. Uh, and uh, you can email us, of course, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But that's it for this week. So I uh, hope you enjoyed the chat about venues and uh, there'll be more of something or other next week. But for now, as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.